Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, so I'm going to give us some applause. Oh, wait, no, I can't because I didn't I didn't share my sound yet. But anyway, I'll share my sound for our guests and then I'll, we'll just clap for ourselves because we have had quite the morning. Whew. Well, it's, it's been a, a fascinating weekend. It's been a good weekend. I was spun. I, I mean, sleep over the weekend, felt stressed ooh. out, needed to talk to friends. Tell, you know, so why don't you give a rundown on what created that that sense of overload? Well. I, I, gosh, I'm so used to being afraid of jinxes and afraid to say anything. But if you're listening to this podcast and you have for the past few weeks, we know that we've, you know, that we've been in negotiations to place one of my centerpiece books for television development. And it was the kind of thing where it was sitting around, sitting around, we got it back from a, a film studio that had tried to do it as a feature we weren't sure what to do next, but we did know that we wanted to be a part of the creative process. That's like the one thing we knew is that we did not want to be shut out of the creative process, not just for financial or ego reasons, but because we also both strongly agreed that that's the best way to get the thing made, the best way for this project to succeed. And literally out of the blue, we got an inquiry from a very strong company. And before we knew it, it was like, Every week there was a new company trying to jump in this thing and a bidding war was starting like people trying. I mean, big names. I can't big, big names in terms of studios leaning into the camera. We're looking for something just like this, which was so weird after 18 months of pitching where we're the ones leading in the camera, trying to get people to get excited about what we're pitching. It's like it's really it's a fascinating difference between trying to get people to do something with you and and those same studios trying to get you to do something with them. I mean, it really is like flipping a switch. Weird, man. I have the experience of, of, of them throwing all of that star power and potential money and all the peep, the names that they drop in terms of who they could hook you up with and what they've done. It's hallucinating. And then one company is like, they, they meet it with us and they're like, they want to meet again. This time, let's have the president of the company on the phone. And, you know, like, okay, what's happening here? And we thought we had made up our minds like Friday afternoon, all the smoke was clearing. There was a, a clear favorite. And then at the last hour, like out of nowhere, a company that, that my reps hadn't even really had on their radar came in with a good offer, like at the last minute. So we had a quick meeting this morning and, you know, one day we'll be able to tell you how it all plays out. Right now, the, you know, it's not signed. It's not official. We have made a decision, but it was a tough one. This new company actually was a way closer number two than any of the other companies we had talked to. So it was an interesting development at the last hour. My, I felt uncomfortable by Friday evening and then on Saturday. And I realized that that sense of overwhelm and I thought that it would be a useful thing to interrogate. Yeah, unpack that. What do you mean when you say what's what's causing that sense of overwhelm, honey? Well, it's always you know, fear in a way uh, is is at the base of such emotions generally. But 
you know, it, it could be stress like I'm afraid that this is going to go wrong or there's always always possibility that you're afraid that things are going to go right, you know, because instances like this, situations like this can be life changing. You know, the, the amount of money that exists in Hollywood when you can navigate all of the gates, all the paths is just intoxicating. I mean, it's ridiculous. It feels disproportionate to the work that is done, except it's not because you're not. Oh, no, it's not. All of the work you did to get to the position where you have access, you have the skills, you have the 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 neural net of allies, et cetera, et cetera. You have the, the uh, an understanding of the map of the territory such that you know what it's going to take for you to traverse it and, and how fast it's going to, how long it's going to take you to get there and, and how to increase your pace of action or sustain a pace of action. Um, so I had to go through a lot of asking myself questions, you know, why, who is the person who I believe could successfully pull this off if this works? What is the gap between who I am and the person I believe could accomplish this? And how do I close that gap? What are the things that would change in my life positively or negatively if this happens? Why is it that that there is this sudden sense of disruption? What's the difference between this and the steps that came before? The conclusion I came to was that the work necessary to perform at this level has been done, but there is still discomfort. There is still, you know, the awareness that, oh my God, we're actually opening the door that we've been trying to reach for decades. I mean, really, honestly, and listeners will know this, we talked about our, our first argument our first real argument as a couple was literally when we were trying to write an outline for this project, even before we got married. So we have been sitting with this one for a very long time. You know, it might be useful to discuss when we got married, one of the first things that we understood was the potential for unity, for corporate action, for, you know, for uh, for the two of us, as a team to accomplish things that neither of us could accomplish separately or that it would be more fun or faster, you know, to, to accomplish together. But there is a very real thing, the the one hit wonder, you know, notion, the, what is it that made the band break up notion, you know, just when they were reaching success, that there aren't a lot of husband, wife writing teams. I suspect that part of that is because you're confusing the personal and the business and the creative that that it's a bigger it's a bigger if you're just partnered with somebody you can break up with them if things aren't going well and you can walk away with no harm no foul if you're married to them especially if you got a family children you have to ask yourself different questions about what you're doing and what it's worth so one of the first things that we that we decided when we got together, how are we going to, to do this? So the rules that we came up with, one of the rules was the relationship always comes first. Yeah. But you know what? It's tough. It's tough to live by that sometimes when you're getting into those down and dirty creative decisions, conversations, you're not seeing the same thing. You're frustrated with, with the process. So we've been through some ups and downs and I'm really, I'm not going to go into details again, but this week, even before this great thing happened in terms of the bidding war, as the great bidding war of 2022, as I'll call it, was that we had a conversation, a creative conversation that could have been very, even six months to a year ago. And because we had that conversation, we were in a, and we both did so great in the conversation that we've both grown. I, you know, we can see how we've grown having that conversation because we'd had that conversation. I think we're feeling that much more confident that we can rise to this moment and all of its opportunities and all of its uncertainties that we do have the capacity to hear each other, that we can continue to partner even as the scenarios change and the stakes change. And our favorite catchphrase is we are what let's say it together. We we are are that that bitch. bitch. That's right. You know, and one of the things we, one of the things that has changed over the last few years is we have a much better circle of allies. Yes. It isn't just that we communicate with each other better. We, we, the team of people that we have around us to advise us and help us through this, not just a top, top notch 
lawyer, not just you know, solid agents, you know, a manager, but friends, you know, yeah. people who, you know, some of whom we've had on this show who we can call up or get together for dinner with and talk about what we're going on. And one of the things that they that they reminded us of was it's, it's a business of relationships. And the what you're looking for is who is the person who can shepherd you through the process? Who, who's the ally? That that's really important. You know, that, that executive that you bring in. Another thing is that there are times when you look at the difference between two contracts and the dollars are different. And the question you have to ask yourself is, do you trust yourself? Yeah, that was it. This deal is betting on ourselves. Yeah, betting, this deal is betting on, on, on ourselves. Because there's one thing is, you know, on signing, there's more money, you know, if if it doesn't sell. Right. You know, because of the money that's loaded up front. But if you do sell the project, then there's more money on the back end. What do you go for? The money, you know, the bird in the hand? Or do you trust yourself? You know, kind of, this is the time to say, I believe we can do this. I, we've okay. I, I, we've got other, this. Other people... The other deals, the other companies, we were trusting other people largely to to take us through the process. And we had to kind of flinch at times about some of the choices they made and, and, and the ways they wanted to do things. This time, it's me and Tanonari. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for since, like I said, before we got married. This is the opportunity. We have won the right to write our own scripts, and it was a hard-fought right. And and let's... A producer, you were executive producer on a, a show that was broadcast, which you know gives us a, gives us more leverage. And that Twilight Zone episode didn't hurt, you know, yeah, and all that so stuff. In terms of writing, in terms of production, in terms of communication, in terms of all these different things, we're not the same people. And this is, part, you know, I'll tell you that this was one of the things that I wanted, one of the reasons I wanted to make our own short film, Danger Word, because I knew that on the other side of doing Danger Word, we'd be producers, not just writers. And right. That, that right. leads to other things. Yeah, and and this is all so exciting, and I can't wait for us to bring in our guest who is in the green room because she is also on a journey where she's uh, doing very very new and exciting things, and I can't wait for her to tell all about it. But before that, let me tell you a little bit about who our guest is. She is the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. She's also one of the writers tapped by Janelle Monet. that's right, the Afrofuturism superstar, to participate in this really unique project called The Memory Librarian and Other Stories of the Dirty Computer, which is when uh, Monet and, and this cohort of writers are bringing Afrofuturism to life on the page. And I also was included with this guest in uh, Tales from Wakanda, Black Panther Tales of Wakanda, edited by Jesse Holland, which again, that was um, where you brought in and you come up with a story. And I know she was very excited about that. We both were. But an award-winning writer, poet, and editor in her own right, Nine Bar Blues, Stories from an Ancient Future, came out in May 2020, first all-pros collection. And the author of two multi-genre hybrid collections called Sleeping Under the Tree of Life is, is the first one. And Shotgun Lullabies, okay? And also, I have to say, groundbreaking, absolutely groundbreaking, as the editor of Dark Matter, the first Black speculative fiction anthology. So please welcome the incredible Cherie Renee Thomas to the show. Come on in. Come on in. Yes, that's all for you. That's all for you from our, our studio audience. Cherie. Our vast studio audience. It's crowded. Hi. Standing room only. It's as usual. It's just so good to see you. I mean, all of our guests are people I would just like to be visiting with, but we happen to have mics. So that's the only difference. <laughs> yeah. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm so excited for you all. Congratulations on this whirlwind weekend. It's been amazing. It's a lot of serious conversation, a lot of you know, meditation, a lot of asking for divine guidance and guidance from the deepest parts of us. And yeah. and I'm sure you, I'm sorry uh, no. if I interrupted you, no, but Sheree, please. I'm sure you can relate, you know, because you've been out here slugging for a long, long time. And you are undergoing a personal renaissance in your own life. 
and career. I, I mean, it looks that way to me from the outside. I, I certainly hope that's how you're experiencing it, where you're having those moments where you get those calls or those invitations and you're like, what just happened? Have you been having those kinds of reactions? Is it, can you discuss it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been a series of is what this is not this is not spam. This is not a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to, uh, you know, um, I was talking to um, one of the memory librarian collaborators, Alaya Don Johnson, and Alaya says that a lot of the email that she receives goes into her, her spam box. And her invitation for this went into her spam box, but she checks it regularly. So she was able to oh, great. <laughs> find it. And when I, when I received my invitation, I looked at it and I was like, huh, this is interesting. Oh, they're not asking me to recommend someone else. They actually want me to do this. You know, as an editor, you're usually the collaborative, you know, coach, you know, you're, you're rounding up talent for projects, but this was one where they asked me to do it. So I was Are very you, baby. excited. Yeah. Are you. Well, you deserve, and I know you're excited about Black Panther 2 and editing. I mean, how would you characterize this era of Afrofuturism? Oh, it's it's a reemergence. I mean, because it felt like, like you all have been writing and working for so very long. And, you know, it's, I was watching something that, you know, Stephen was saying that he at, the, at one point you lived across the street from Octavia Butler. Down the street. No, I, I, was, I was about five blocks away. We were easy walking yeah. distance. Walking distance. So it's, I know it's a long, long journey for, for many people. And so to me, we were, we were, were super excited when I, you know, in the nineties when we got on the scene, but this to me is a, is a reemergence because now it's a larger conversation. It's a more global conversation than it seemed to be at first. So, and multimedia. So. Yes. <laughs> in the background there, that was uh, the house where Octavia lived. At that time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see it, but he just put it up on his screen. I'll do the uh, the walkthrough. Yeah, but I wanted to make sure you know the, you have a unique opportunity. This is the first time we've had the editor of a magazine on here, and the the process that we discuss with people, that we teach with people about writing, involves writing short stories. We feel it is the the most efficient way of of crossing the line from being an unknown and unpublished writer to being published that it's that stop before you try to do a full book or certainly try, you know, try to get into Hollywood, unless you live here and have good connections, that's tough. But writing, selling short stories, you have specialized knowledge about what an editor is looking for that would allow a newbie writer to get into the field. If you could talk about, you know, the, what rules do you suggest for people who are trying to break into writing? Because that's the beginning of all this. All these things that you're, are happening with you, all the things that are happening with us, it begins with writing and writing something that somebody will want to give you money for. Mm-hmm. So talk to us a little bit about the editor's eye in terms of the business of what are you looking for? How can people optimize their chances of success with somebody like you? For short stories, which is the area that's my my joy and the lane that I love probably the most, if you're trying to submit your work to a particular publication, it is critical that you read the publication. I know that writers are very special and and have you must have a, a very strong ego and confidence while also being very vulnerable at the same time and, and developing a thick skin. So a lot of times people think, well, if my writing is good, it doesn't matter if I've read the magazine, because they're just going to like it because it's good. But there's a, but each publication has its own audience and aesthetic, and it has its own history. The magazine of fantasy and science fiction will be 73 years old this October. Mm. Uh, and so that legacy has changed over the years of the, the different editors that they've had. And um, I'm the 10th editor and the second woman and the first person of color, period. Um, the Say only that. woman. So my aesthetic is not going to be the same as Charlie Finley's was or the same as Chris's or, you know, our our publisher, Gordon Van Gelder or or Ed Furman, who is still, you know, you know, reading and alive on the planet with us. Right. (laughs) Watching his legacy continue to grow and so on. So you have to read what you are trying to be a part of. In some cases, you won't know because it's a call for submissions, like an anthology, and it's just a theme. And then then you're just, you know, you dive in, lean into who you are, what makes your voice special, 
and what you think will make um, a story that will stand out for readers. You know what I mean? If you're a water anthology, you know, everybody and their mom's going to send a mermaid story, right? So if you're going to do that, then make your, make sure yours is one that no one's ever read before or lean into something different than that. For FNSF, the most important thing, I think, is for you to find out what makes me tick. And I'm still exploring that, too, as an editor, having only been an editor of the publication officially for one year, right? I have editorials where I talk about it. You can follow the magazine. I don't write a lot of personal stuff on the magazine. Um, Most of my personal stuff is on my personal account. But be aware, I'm a Black woman (laughs) with, you know, grown Black children in the world. So I'm not always writing about science fiction and fantasy. That's not my timeline all the time. I'm I'm interested in the world that we live in. And so I'm always engaging with that. Um, I'm Southern. So this one, find the publication, read it, see what it, if, if it's a good fit for you. Because it may not be, you know, you might not like the status of a publication, you might like the reach of it, but does it really fit what you're trying to do, right? So think about that. And then the next thing you want to do is to read the call for submissions, which is so basic, but I cannot tell you, if we received like thousands of submissions a month, Mm. and the fact that it's so very clear from just reading the first page that people aren't reading the submissions is very sad. You already bring me into a space of skepticism because I'm already feeling like I'm going to get something I can't do anything with. And at this point, when I have 1,500 submissions coming in and I have a group of readers, but we still got to go through all of these submissions and I've got to look at everything to see what I want to actually, you know, ask to be rewritten or see if I want to actually acquire. I'm still reading all of this stuff. You're just making it easier for me to send you a rejection letter, a form rejection letter at that, right? right? Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Let let me ask. Oh, I'm sorry. That is great. And I'm hanging on your every word. And I hope the listeners are, too. Uh, Those of you who are submitting stories. You've been there a year. But knowing you, I have a feeling that in that year, you have already accomplished something that you are super proud of. Can you just tell me something that that pops up for you that that you're proud of, even in the short time you've been there? Oh, my gosh. I hadn't even had time to think about that because oh, it never ends. Though. The, the submissions never end. But I'm, no matter what's happening, I'm reading submissions and 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 and, and producing the, the magazine. But I well, think, I know you're opening doors for a lot of writers. Yeah, I think we probably have had the most diverse issues of FNSF in their entire history. I think that's probably happened. And, and when I say diverse, I mean intergenerational. I mean countries from around the world. And I mean women. And I mean people of color and Black writers in particular. I think my May-June issue last year was probably the Blackest issue they ever, ever had, you know, from page one to page last. And it was, you know, excellent, I have to say. <laughs> so my whole goal is just to show that you can do a wonderful magazine and not necessarily be, you know, every veteran of the world. It doesn't have to always be you know, writers who we've already known, you know, for 40, 50 years, you can also take a chance on new voices and their work can stand up just as strongly next to the, the writers we already love and cherish. So I've been just trying to, to create more opportunities, professional opportunities, because when you publish with FNSF, it is a professional market. It has an impact not only on your, your writer's fee that you receive, but also on your ability to join the writer's guilds. You have an opportunity to join uh, the Science Fiction Writers Association. You have an opportunity to join Horror Writers of America and other publications based on it being that market. So opening that door up for more writers who might not have that opportunity or it might take them a very long time to have that opportunity. I'm pretty excited about that. 
might not have dreamed of it. Yeah. One of the, one of the debates right now is around the term woke. You know, that there are people, the, the, the puppies, as they're often referred to, who have an objection to the changing nature of science fiction in the sense of being interested in, in different social aspects than during the golden age of science fiction, which is generally when somebody was 12. What do you think about that debate and how do you address it in your own choices? When you use that term woke in the way that it was not designed to be used, you're already telling me something about you. And it might not be something you want to tell me, but you've already told me something about what it. What does it tell? Uh, my husband says you basically call it, you know, basically use the N-word without using the N-word. It's like a very slick, you know, trick of semantics where you are letting us know a lot about what you value and what you don't value, right? So if to represent the actual world that we live on, and which actually whiteness is a minority on the planet Earth. And there are so many other cultures, which are mostly black and brown, to be honest. Right. Then you're telling me that you are invested in not necessarily realism. You're, you're invested in a fantasy of, 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 of that doesn't really serve our art. Right. If you put on blindness to all the other wonderful contributions that are being made in the world from other people, you know, and if we're just talking about America and just. America in particular, of course, we have submissions from around the world and a published people from around the world. But if we're just talking about America, you're losing so much of the beauty of storytelling that's a part of our culture as a nation. And, and they're, they're trying to. Imply- I love that. I agree. I agree. <laughs> they're trying to imply <laughs> that if you do this, if you depict the world as it is, if you genuinely are invested in the future and you're genuinely asking these questions, the expression, get woke, go broke. They're trying to convince people that nobody wants this. Nobody wants reality. Nobody wants to the world to be represented as it actually is. Go back to the fantasies that comforted me that the whole world revolves around me and my family and people mm. look like me. I consider that to be not just negative, but childish. It is, it, it's, a, it's a refusal to be mature. And I think that, that the people who try to create depictions of societies in their stories that are not, a, and not realistic about what we really are in terms of things like race and gender and sexual orientation and cultures, they're going to be consigned to the dustbin of literary history. You know, they're, they're dinosaurs and it's, I feel sorry for them. They're just controlled by their fear and afraid of future shock. I, a big- I, feel, I feel bad about that too, because think about it. I mean, these, I mean, the science fiction and fantasy readers and horror readers often pride themselves on having this expansive view of the world. Right. And they pat themselves on the back at con, you know, at conferences and things on being, you know, you know, more, you know, evolved than some other parts of society because they have this, this, this connection to the imagination and they're very deeply rooted in that. But if you can't imagine the world that we actually live in right now <laughs> and, and you can't extrapolate that into a future and you don't feel secure in that, it actually, you know, fills you with fear. There is something else that you have to explore. And, you know, and science fiction is not going to necessarily help you with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> At least I mean, in your problems. In a lot of cases, other problems, you know. In a lot of cases, they believe that if a, a person who is not a white heterosexual male is depicted in a story or in a movie, that that's affirmative action. That they can't believe that on the, either just because you're trying to depict society as it is, or that a person could get into that position based upon their merits. The notion that you got your job because of your merits, you know, anyone who's going to say, well, they're just trying to be woke, is saying that you couldn't have done that without that. But they're also not looking at all of the white males that were in that position, and they're not saying that those people were were hired because of a, a form of affirmative action. Mm-hmm. They all earned it. But if you don't look that way, then it has to be because somebody is making a political point. There, once again, that's the calling you the N word without using the N word. They can't believe that the that the values, the 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 worth could be there independent of somebody's politics. It's pretty sad. I have a word for such folks. Um, y'all need to wake up because the world is rolling over and past you at this point. I I've been enjoying books 
movies about people who didn't look like me my whole life. (laughs) And, and, And it's a thing. It's actually a thing. It's a thing that you can do. And expand our vision of what the country and world look like to something that is not, as Cherie put it so well, so a it's fantasy. Not, uh, it's not uh, get woke, go broke, but stay asleep, be a creep. <laughs> <laughs> and I, like I want to <laughs> I, I talk about this dynamic power of what we call Afrofuturism. It has different names. So the cultural critic Mark Derry coined the term in the early 90s, basically observing a phenomenon that was already underway in work, literature, film, music, conversations between Black artists, much of it future-facing, dealing with the digital divide and stuff like that. But as I teach Afrofuturism at UCLA, it's really the speculative arts, the Black speculative arts of the African diaspora. I have a very broad definition of Afrofuturism that would include African futurism and would include, you know, artists like Nalo Hopkinson, who's writing out of myths, you know, and the Caribbean. I've always been so fascinated by Janelle Monet's interest in Afrofuturism. I don't know if our, our listeners know this, but if you look up Janelle Monet on Twitter, she literally has another name she goes by, which is Cindy Mayweather. Cindy Mayweather is a character she created. It's an android who appears in many of her earlier music videos and androids being a metaphor for slavery and, and creating them and, and whatever image we like and this kind of thing. And she's just been on this. She has been on this throughout her career. I teach I teach her, obviously, in my Afrofuturism class, but I was so excited that this book, The Memory Librarian is out now because I teach Dirty Computer. If you haven't seen Dirty Computer, it's 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 free and it's available on YouTube and just watch it. It has a great music and a interstitial storytelling. But tell me about meeting her, what she was like, what the vision of this project is, what's it like to be a part of it? Because you I follow you on Instagram. So I know you were just at a publicity event. Oh yeah. So we just finished um the I guess the first part of a book tour. So great. That was so exciting. They um Flew from Memphis to New York, which is my other home. Obviously, a lot of my publishing career took place in New York. I raised my my eldest here, definitely, for sure. And my youngest and I went back to Memphis at some point. But we had our first event at the Brooklyn um, Academy of Music, which Ooh. was wonderful. There were 1,300 people there. They already had their books. It was just amazing. I never, I don't think I've ever stood in front of a reading audience that, that was that large. So that was amazing. I was very nervous. Danny Lore was there. There are five collaborators with Janelle Monet. So there is Elia Don Johnson, who wrote The Memory Librarian. There is Danny Lore, who wrote Nevermind. There is Eve L. Ewing, who wrote, oh my gosh, I always, always I'm so impressed you remember these names. This is like, what? Oh, that's the editor in you. I'm time sorry. Time Box, obviously. <laughs> I could, how could I forget Time Box? Um, Johanka Delgado, who wrote Save Changes. And me, Renee Thomas, who wrote Time Box Altered. So there are five stories, of course, the beautiful introduction. And um, it was just amazing. I kept looking up and the the lights made me uh, nervous. And then I kept seeing the balcony and it was like, oh, there are people up at the top. There are people at the top. But I, you know, I've been- How many people were there totally? Yeah. 1,300? 1,300 people. That's great. For the first event. And I think the Washington DC one was sold out as well. And then there was Atlanta events and Chicago. We, we'd Chicago. love to have all you guys on the podcast. <laughs> hey, how about that? I'd love no. to do a show. You know, <laughs> I think they would love that. Around this project. Put a bug in their ear. You know, we no can way. make busy, but we can make a little bit of room for uh, Janelle if she's willing to, like, you know, work with us on that. But, yep. but what? Down to the Wonderland team. I'll, 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 you know, get you in touch with Kyle uh, Dargan, our wonderful editorial director who coordinated all of us during the pandemic through the Zooms and everything. Janelle was wonderful to me and it's it's very cool because you already know like you said she's a lifelong science fiction fan and that was another thing it kind of struck me was that you know when you're out here you're doing your work I mean I know you all have encountered your fans many 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 times and and Todd Nottery knows my mom like like loves love 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 loves your work but you don't know who else might be fans of your work, right? And you don't know who else in other spheres who have your books on their shelves as well. And so, you know, these works, this science fiction work that she's been reading, 
and exploring and thinking about, you know, comes rooted with her, you know, spending time with her grandmother from who's, you know, from Mississippi and watching, you know, Twilight Zone and eating meals with her grandmother and just being in that world. So when she's creating her own work, from my understanding, when she was creating Cindy Mayweather, all of that history and her also being a writer when she was in high school, all of that informed her art you know, and how she wanted to change the mold of what a Black woman singer could be, right? And the kinds of genres that she could perform in and how she presented herself. So it's a lot of like, you know, innovative work that she had to do to kind of go against the grain uh, of it. And being a science fiction fan and reader, I think, you know, probably helped, you know, make that a natural process for her as a musician to know that there are things that you can, you know, build your own world and draw upon these other worlds, German impressionism and, you know, the concept of the robot and, you know, it's bring in, you know, yeah, Metropolis. She named her yeah, first Metropolis. album Metropolis yeah. after the 1920s. I forget the director, but yeah, she's yeah. Fritz Lee. Um, who was it? Fritz Lang. Um, Fritz Lang. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. she's all yeah. in it all the way up and through it. And I love that this is a collaborative process and that she brought in, all of these other writers. I mean, what what could be better than that? What could be better? I mean, she's like beautiful. You see her, her skin is just as popping as it is in the videos. You know, she's gorgeous. She's like, she's very gracious. She's, she's very smart, obviously very brilliant and just very funny. Also very funny and kind. And just seeing her, the way she moves with her team and how they work together was very, I mean, because she was, like you said, a community person. She started her art with an artist collective, the Wonderland Arts Society, you know, and I think they were doing all their things in Atlanta at the time. She's from a big family. She told us she had 49 first cousins because (laughs) she's got a big family. So she's used to doing things in a communal way. So this was very unusual because I wasn't sure initially if we were going to be ghostwriting, if we were going to be like, what's happening? You like you're because that's totally different money. Right. <laughs> like, And I've ghostwritten before and I wasn't sure I didn't you know, I wasn't I wasn't actually interested in doing that again. But when I found out that there was a collaborative process and that we would be, you know, creating work with her in her world, in her imagination, in the dirty computer world, which I got to see her perform live at Memphis during, you know, when she was on tour for Dirty Computer before the pandemic. It was just wonderful, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> that is great. It sounds like you're doing a lot of traveling and, 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 I, and I know a little bit from experience as exciting as it is when you're a part of these larger projects, like you're working with a Marvel project or you're working with Janelle Monet, you still need to sort of keep a piece of yourself for you. Right. Oh my so, God, yes. <laughs> so let's let's move we'd to like that. To piece. Talk a little bit about self care. Yeah. For the artists, you know the these broadcasts are they're just friendly conversations in one way, but in another way, we would like to help prospective artists understand not just how to do their best art, but how to survive the process, mm-hmm. how to navigate both the business and the creative landscape, but also taking care of themselves, their relationships, their families, that core, because. Any any industry will eat all of you that you offer to it. If you don't hold things back for yourself, you don't remember where you came from, where all this all this originated. They will eat you, spit you, you know, just chew you up and spit out the bones, and then say, "Oh, I'm sorry, you're you're not as good as you used to be. You're not as fresh as you used to be. We're going to move on to the next one." So, how are you? What have you been experiencing in terms of stress and how do you handle For me, it's being public in a way that I'm not accustomed to being public. Like I'm not like I'm on social media, but I'm not like the social media diva. I'm no Daniel Jose older. You know, I'm like, I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> I'll right. have a band and soundtrack behind me, choreographed moves and stuff. It's just not a natural thing. If I actually, if I had known that we had to do all this as a writer, I don't even know if I would have went, you know, continue <laughs> You know, I still had this very ancient ideal of what it means to be a writer, which is you write the work somewhere private and quiet, and then you send it to your publisher, and then they publish it, and then readers interact with it. And every now and then you might interact with a reader if they happen to, you know, you happen to encounter them, but not necessarily being like a part of your everyday thing. So being public in a way, like with a magazine, like 
constantly being front street with very strange people. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Very strange people who have no country common sense sometimes. No, like some things you were asking me earlier about what to do with your, you know, if you want to publish in a place, but well, don't piss off your editor. That's yes. the first thing. <laughs> you know, like treat it like a job interview. You want a job, you're not going to go in there and talk crazy to the person that's interviewing you or to your you know, proposed supervisor or team. You're going to want to be a team player. So, you know, some of the, like the entitlement that I've seen and some of these letters that I received, it's just been fascinating. Let's put it like that. So we- Give us a bad example. Give us an example of something that hit you where you just really said, what is wrong with this person? No names. Oh, okay. <laughs> no names, but um, somebody, you know, I only send out a, a personal a personal rejection letter if I actually, one, feel like it's going to be useful to you. And if it's something I feel like that will help just move you along in the next thing. And then the story was just enough there. You submitted enough times where I felt like, ah, I see a progress, but you keep doing this. So let me just tell them in case no one else does or tell them that this thing. Then you get a letter back, you know, saying, you know, <laughs> you know, all this other stuff of what they meant to do and da, 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 da. No, that's not, you don't need all that. You don't need all that. Or I got a letter once from someone that said, oh, I've been a subscriber this long and these issues, you have this many relationships that are homosexual and lesbian and da, 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 da. And I was like, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, wait. See, I ruined it. I did it twice. I read this letter and then they're like, but I don't mean no harm. And I'm not, I'm not homophobic. I was like, I said, let me ask you to do something. When you can go back and look at the 72 years of publishing and count how many cis, you know, heterosexual relationships that are in, in, you know, explored in the stories. And that number is somehow less than the number of stories that you've just read. You know, then we can have a conversation. Otherwise, keep this foolishness out my box. Like, don't, I'm just not there for that. The other thing is people, like, they have a sense that I just arrived from the sky, dropped from the moon into the community, and not a sense that I, you know, I became a part of fandom and science fiction the way that they did. You know, they have mm-hmm. some different story involved, you know, because they just don't see us as being a part of the community. And I'm just like my, you know, I always say this, but it's because it's true. My family has at least contributed to one tiny King family vacation at some point in his career with the volume of books that we've published over the years. We are part of that invisible bottom line, you know. So, you know, postal workers or whatever might not be able to take off time to go to a big world convention and spend thousands of dollars with their entire family to go there and be present so you can see that black people are part of fandom right. you know but we're at home buying those books you yes. know what I'm saying talking so to cool. each other so watching yeah so I'd, I'd like to make sure that we get a little specificity when you feel overwhelmed when you feel like all of this media stuff is knocking you off center, how do you get back on track? What do you, what's your go-to? If you had three suggestions for this is how I keep from going insane or getting sick. What are they? I've been better at shutting off the computer, like mm-hmm. just shutting it off. Like I'm not getting notifications from Twitter or IG. I'm not getting emails, especially if this is the weekend. Good luck to you. I will see you on Monday. Or what have you. That's been that's been very hard because it's not how I've operated before, you know, but I've had to do it just to just to keep just to feel like I'm not, you know, a rat in a in a wheel. You know, I have a wonderful husband who's also a writer. So he completely What's his name? Tell us his name. Oh, Danny and Daryl Jerry. Yay. Oh, and what's his most recent project? So we can just kind of give him a little shout out. Oh, he has a story coming out in Africa Risen. Um, oh, good. Uh, 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 a new era of speculative um, fiction. He I'm in there. A story in the uh, Black Panther Tales of Wakanda. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. And he's got a little chat book that came out in Third Man Books in the Literarium Machine that's in their new UK store in London. What's, it, what's the so, title? Oh, I think it's Star, Star, Scars and Bars. Okay. Um, Boy with the golden arm. (laughs) Great. Great, 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 great. Yeah. I I love, I love writing couples. That's wonderful. So, so, you know, you have a a date night 
you know, you have date nights, you know, mutual, you know, giving back rubs, watching movies and popping popcorn together, you know, playing with each other's toes. Absolutely. Walking, yes. walking, being in the fresh air together, watching yes. crazy movies. <laughs> yes, yes. What's your favorite crazy movie that always gets you feeling uh, like you? Oh, well, I always laugh my ass off when I watch The Thing. I don't know. <laughs> no, the Thing, absolutely. The thing. Is yeah, it funny? John, I John love Carpenter. The the, the, <laughs> yes. yes. It's funny? Wait. No, but I like it. <laughs> it's funny in it. It's insane. And I couldn't believe, I only found out recently that um, but the critics didn't like it. Like, I didn't know. I thought it was No, like, it was classic. not successful when it first came out. <laughs> yeah, they don't know. No it, idea. It took time. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I love that movie. <laughs> it was wonderful. ahead of its time. It was ahead of its time. And, really and, and speaking of ahead of its time, if I may segue, there I want to go. go back, right? I want to go back to Dark Matter, which came out in 2000. And I, it was the first, as far as I know, Black speculative fiction anthology and you can talk more about it, but I, I remember Steve and I having a conversation with Octavia Butler when we were at her house and we were talking about dark matter and, and, you know, there had been some film inquiries or whatever. And then Octavia said, but you know, Hollywood, and we all laughed and laughed and laughed. So tell us about dark matter, where it, where it started and where it's headed. Oh, well, it seems like dark matter started out of my uh, desire to, to read for pleasure, right? I was working in, you know, I was working in book publishing. I was like editing books. I was editing Regency romances, actually. So like this whole Bridgerton thing is like, whoa, Regency's on, 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 you know, as a series. I love it. And I wasn't, I wasn't working in the science fiction division, right? You know, it was just very difficult to get in those places, you know? So I was in women's fiction and romance and in one world, which was the, the, you know, multicultural imprint. And so when I would finish editing the romances in the day, I would go home and read science fiction. And I had read like all of all of your old stuff, all of your stuff that was out at the time. I read it. In fact, my mentor, Cheryl Woodruff, had given me your very first book. And so, we, you know, we were all excited. And I didn't see an anthology that has short fiction. And I kept thinking... Oh, they just, they must not have it. It must be out of print or something. I might have to go to Able Books or something, you know, and go find it. And the the book associate at Barnes and Noble, actually, I went there, you know, because they have the big computers that can look up stuff. And they were like, I don't see anything. I don't think it exists. I was like, what? <laughs> and I kept thinking, I was like, all these, even the writers that I knew, you know, that I could count on my little hands, Surely could, we could put an anthology together, their work, but it didn't, they didn't know where it was. So I left with a Japanese collection. So, you know, this story, I left with a, a collection that Martin Greenberg had um, translated from Japanese into English. And I woke up about three in the morning and I was like, damn, it doesn't exist. And yet people have taken time to translate other languages into science fiction and create anthologies. But they haven't done it. And so I just started thinking about it and I just started jotting down some ideals. And it was like, like if I had a magic wand, who would I put in a book, right? Of, you know, of short stories. And, and I kept thinking of my brothers and I kept thinking of my cousins. I was like, if I had to introduce this work to someone who doesn't read it, they watch movies, you know, or what have you, but they don't read it. Who would I have? What stories of theirs? So I started just jotting down different, you know, TLCs just to see what it would look like. And it, planned, it went from there. I talked to Cheryl Woodruff. I talked to my agent at the time, Mar- Marie Dutton Brown, who was like, they were very supportive. They were like, ah, it's a good idea. You should try it. You should do it. And it kind of just went from there. And that was 98. And you got um, everybody. It was Octavia, me, Steve, Samuel R. Delaney, I believe is in there as well. That's correct. Well, W.E.B. Du Bois, even. You rescued a story from 1920 called The Comet. I which... right off my shelf. I just went to my bookshelf at home and I looked and I said, ah, they don't think of these as science fiction. This is science fiction. Girl, well, <laughs> you put your that foot was in important. it. You did an actually important thing in, in literature, Shuri. And it's now been reissued, I believe, right? Or it's on Kindle Yeah, now. it's in print. Thank you. And it got digital, thanks to you also. <laughs> well, I just wondered, hey, what's going on with that? You know, because post-Black Cause Panther. Before digital was a part of the boilerplate of the contracts, right? So uh, that yeah. first one didn't have any digital rights initially. And then I think you were teaching. You wanted to teach from. It's like, there's no digital, and, you know. So thank you for that. Because I was just, I had kind of let it, you know, once it was out there, 
you know, it, it won the two World Fantasy Awards. And it was the first time a Black writer, which I was so shocked. I was like, no one else has won this award. <laughs> I know, it ain't the compliment it seems like at the time. Like, 1975, that was so bizarre to me. I didn't even realize that until, you know, someone pointed it out. But, and I think someone, I think then they started like looking at the work, right? <laughs> Late after that. But it was just a lot. It's had, it's constantly being reintroduced to new audiences. So that's wonderful to, and also to hear from people who will say either they, they're doing their dissertation on Afrofuturism or doing dissertation on some of the writers. And it was one of the first books there where they saw their work or they, you know, you know, had an idea of what it was that they were writing to. We have some indirect love stories in the sense that I found out that one of the writers in the first collection, Pam Knowles, had a wonderful blog, right? That one of the columns that they wrote talked about, you know, being a part of being a fan of science fiction and, you know, and their parents trying to steer them away from it because of, you know, fearing that they would be impacted by racism and that kind of thing and writing mm. about that experience of seeing the first star star Wars movie and feeling kind of like not seen, like it was very whitewashed, right? Yeah. There were no black faces yeah. in star Wars, the original star Wars. So yeah. But- finding out that Matt Ruff who wrote Lovecraft country read Pam's blog because they were in dark matter saw that that planted a seed and then some other experience that they had in college with the green book being introduced to the concept of the green book guide to you know where you can go travel as a black person in america without so wait a minute planted the seed for him to write lovecraft country the novel so you're saying you no i created lovecraft country yeah no 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 No, i'm kidding i'm kidding but you, Damn but you hell. gave her, you gave her that leg up. Anyway, it's also interconnected. <laughs> yeah, it was like a, it was, it was just kind of this community was building and people were talking. We've had a Pulitzer Prize winner, like, you know, National Book Award finalists and winners. Honoré Fanon Jeffers, her very first short story, I published it in Dark Matter. And now she's like the queen of literature. Huge, <laughs> With huge. the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. You know, oh, yeah, it's right next to the WBEB divorce story. Look at so those seats. Just, That's amazing. You know, Amir Baraka, you know, you know, gave us a blessing for his story of Ishmael Reed, who was very, very important to me as a poet, as a writer, particularly with Mumbo Jumbo and and Yellow, Yellow Radio Broke Down and those kinds of books. All of those things really influenced me as a writer, Henry Dumas having his work in there, thanks to Eugene Redmond and his widow, uh, Mrs. Dumas. A lot of, you know, it was just a lot. And to see what these writers have been able to do in their careers over the years has been really wonderful. What are you working on right now? What's next for you? What's next for Cherie that that is just for your heart? What are you doing? Oh, well, I'm working on a project that's just for me. Another project that I just wrote that I put all of my spirit in it (laughs) is um, the Black Panther novel that's coming out this year. Yeah. What's it called? Let's plug it. It's called Panther's Rage. Yeah. Panther's Rage. He mad. Yeah. <laughs> Panther's it's Rage. It's story. It's like the first, the first, the first time he got his own arc in, oh. uh, in Marvel Comics. So, Very yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So I got to reimagine that for the When is that coming out? That's coming out this summer. So this summer. That's great. I yeah. wish you all the success in the world with yeah. that. I, I'm really excited about having you on here because, like I said, you're the first editor that we've had on and what what we what we've been doing with this thing called life writing it's the application of Joseph Campbell's model of the hero's journey to both writing stories the process of writing stories and the process of living life so that what you learn about life fits into your stories and what you do in your stories are actually working out problems that you actually care about in your life so that first step of writing a short story, you know, we'd say writing, you know, write one sentence a day, write one to four short stories a month, you know, and then polish them and submit them. And if you, if you will do that consciously, you can get on that path to, uh, to learning your voice, you know, how, what you do. So our, our pro, you know, having you here and with what you just said, we're going to want to extract from the things you said, 
you know, rules that can help people to succeed making that first step, getting that first publication. Our our primary program, the, the sponsor of, the, of our podcast, <laughs> is the Life Writing Premium System. It's a, it's a, it's a year of, of weekly prompts and lessons where all we ask is if you will write, promise to write one sentence a day and watch one of these videos a week, we can get you on that process. So T, say a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. This is all fantastic in terms of, especially the newer writers, absolutely pay attention to what Sheree is saying, know the marketplace. And if you're following the life writing program of a sentence a day, you can write a short story a month, you can write a, technically speaking, a novel a year, but you probably see the trick with the sentence a day is that our philosophy is it's much like eating potato chips. Once you do one, it's hard to stop. It's it's getting into the mood to write yes. sometimes that holds us back from writing. And if we have a contract that we can't lie to ourselves and say we don't have time to write one sentence. So no. that can if really help that, the way. You're just lying to yourself. You have time to write one sentence. And then what you get to do is interrogate, well, what's going on inside me that I won't let myself express creatively. So if you'd like to learn more about the Life Writing Premium programs, go to www.lifewritingpremium.com. We're already, we accept submissions for our hot seats where we read the stories and analyze the stories in a group, you know, in a group Zoom call. And we'll be doing that again soon. So uh, we would love to have anybody to, who is interested in being a writer and is willing to do at least one sentence a day. You know, we're, we're here to help you. So, and, and Sheree, it's been so great to talk to you. I won't call it a glow up because you've been glowing. You know, you've been glowing. <laughs> you've been glowing since day one. I mean, I don't even know if you mentioned how old you were, by the way, when you edited Dark Matter, you were a newbie. You were just in your 20s. You were a kid, right? So you've been in this business for a long time. You've been publishing your own work, but you've also created an, an environment where you can help other people get into the field and help the field be more inclusive, which is a gift to everyone, not just the inclusive or, you know, so-called diverse writers. excluded. <laughs> yeah, the formerly, the FI writers, but, but everyone, because it's a bright, beautiful world out there. Why only see parts of it? See as much of it as you can. You know, my hope for you is just that with all this excitement happening, you're still able to hear your, your sort of voices and, and write. Do you still love writing short stories yourself? You say that's your first. I still do. That's I your home. I still love writing short stories, but I've, I've noticed I've been cre- cre- creeping at the longer limbs, writing novelettes and novellas. So um so we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, well, and you've heard it from someone who's been in the field for a long time. When we say write short stories, it's not a remedial assignment. They're not easy to write by any means, <laughs> but they just generally can take less time just because of pure length of the yeah, story. You don't have as much of yourself invested so that if it gets rejected, it's not as much of a kick in the in the, in the gut. You know, it's like, well, you, you know, by the time you get rejected, you should be on to your next story. Yeah, you moved on. You're already writing something else. So right. we think it's a great way. And also you screenwriters, uh, a lot of screenwriters try to jump into those features. Start with a short, 20 minutes or under, 20 pages or under. Get your yeah, feet together under with you. a short with a filmmaker, you know, local acting school. Actually, you know, write a one act play and actually video it on your iPhone and post it on post it on YouTube. If you've got some chops. Show people you've got chops, and you—you know there are so many people who've gotten into the industry by putting themselves out there, one way or the other. The the doorways are so open now compared to what they used to be. It's just—it's not even funny. There's no comparison. Yeah, it's the best time I've ever experienced for for creators, especially in genre. So if you had any thoughts about it, the answer is yes. Jump in, jump <laughs> in. So glad to have had you. Thank you for being here, Sheree Renee Thomas. It's so great. Uh, the Memory Librarian is her new project with Janelle Monet. It just has such a great ring to it. I'm gonna just keep saying that. And 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 also <laughs> turn the cover around. You had you're showing us the, the back cover. of the book. Yes, Memory there we go. Librarian, there we go. watch Dirty Computer to get yourself in the mood, and then and then do pick up your copy. And that Panther's Rage coming out this summer. That was hot. That sounds good, too. And and whatever else you're working on, we can't wait to hear about it. Thank you for being with us, everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to catch up on the previous podcast we've had with other great Afrofuturists like uh, Nalo Hopkinson. We had an interview excerpts from the late Octavia Butler and Kay Jemison. And as far as you all are concerned, go out and write 
the story of your lives. That's right. Be the hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye, everybody. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. A well-told story has the power to transport you to places you've never been. And if you enjoy books and travel, you are going to love our podcast, Strong Sense of Place. I'm Mel. And I'm Dave. Every two weeks, we get curious about one destination and discuss five great books that took us there on the page. We start with an overview of what makes that place different than anywhere else on Earth. And then we tackle a round of two truths and a lie to explore stories behind that place. But the heart of our show is our book recommendations. We share why we love each title with no spoilers. Take an imaginary trek with us through Iceland, sip Uzo in Athens, or virtually ride the rails on an epic train adventure. Strong Sense of Place was featured in Apple's Top 10 Podcasts for the Arts. If you love books and travel, come along with us. Listen to Strong Sense of Place on your favorite app or visit us at strongsenseofplace.com. 